the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. You're reading it like you've said that before. <laughs> Welcome to the program. I'm giving our engineer, Jarrell Martin, a bad time. He's mouthing along with the words of our announcer, um, the introduction to the program. Maybe it's time that we're going to change it tomorrow on you just to, just to keep you on your toes. How's that? Very funny. Thank you. Welcome to the program. Great to have you on board for this Wednesday. It is the fourth day of October. We've made it to the middle of the week. Trust you're having a good week so far. We're going to do something a little bit different today. I hope that it will be, in fact, um, uh, refreshing, if not to the greatest degree, revolutionizing for your marriage. We spent a lot of time in the last 48 hours talking about Las Vegas. Um, at some point, I think we all sort of reach saturation. So we have made the intentional choice today to dive into another topic. And it's a topic, I think, that is an important one to all of us and certainly all of society today. Now, in 2017, in the new generation here, we're doing a lot to uh, make things proof. We find a big effort toward making furniture fireproof, clothing waterproof. We like to have our technical instructions foolproof. Ask any husband on Christmas Day what that's all about. But is it possible to make our marriages divorce-proof? That's our topic today as we're joined in studio by marriage and family counselor, the author of the newly released Making Love Last, Divorce-Proofing Your Marriage. And we're pleased to have Laura Taggart with us today. Laura, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Boy, proofing things. Uh, <laughs> you know, we'd like to have our homes earthquake-proof. Mm-hmm. But in 2017, I have to wonder, with a divorce rate that runs yeah. on average 50%, a lot of marriages barely make it. One-third, I think, are out before they even make it to 10 years. Is it really even possible to make our marriages divorce-proof? Well, I think it's certainly possible to give them fortresses. And I, it is actually in my book, I think, if, if people do uh, follow some of the practices and um, – think through marriage in a little different way, I think it can be possible to divorce-proof your marriage, although it's 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 a hard concept to swallow, I realize. And, and you have sat on the other side of the table mm-hmm. listening to individuals and couples for nearly 30 years now yes. in your role as a marriage and family counselor. And imagine you, you've heard every story, Everything under the sun in terms of what went wrong, what he did wrong, what she did wrong, a lot of it, I guess, has to come back to a core issue that we go into marriage with certain expectations yes. for ourselves, for our spouse. We tend to project those expectations to varying degrees of success or failure. And I guess when we bump into the unexpected, the unrealistic, or maybe just the the unexplained, mm-hmm. um, we find out that a lot of these expectations don't get met, and we right. are hit with a huge wave of disappointment yes. that typically triggers the, boy, did I make a mistake. Yeah, I often it can, yes. 
Yeah, um, and I find oftentimes, you know, in early marriage, there's this idealization that, you know, things are going to be easy. Uh, we're not going to have an extended amount of conflict. But often in year four, five, sometimes earlier, sometimes a little bit later, we those idealized expectations kind of come crashing down, and couples often don't know what to do with that. I think that's why there's a 32% divorce rate between years five and ten, is they come to that period of time where they just feel like they're, uh, they're perhaps married the wrong person, and they don't have a lot of tenacity about really working. And this is why the book is directed toward young marriages in particular, because a lot of times they don't uh, have the skill set. They don't have the tools they feel like they need to get through conflict, but they haven't really expected to have that much difficulty. I did a survey for the book of about 260 young couple, young individuals who were married, and they uh, all, so almost to a to a person, indicated that it was much harder than they ever expected it would be. You mentioned oftentimes the the they're, they're ill-equipped; they don't yeah. have the right tool set, yes, um, the right kind of skills necessary. Is a lot of that because of the challenges that we're seeing in culture today, where so many individuals are coming into marriage? Um, having been from broken homes Mm -hmm. in the first place. So a lot of the issues, even if they were in a home that was together, maybe it wasn't very stable. Maybe there was a lot of anger and all of these issues. And so suddenly now the family of origin issues, almost like excess baggage or luggage we carry with us knowingly or otherwise into the marriage relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And even though we might go into it saying, I don't want this marriage to be anything like what I right. saw my parents go through, right. or I will let, never let my husband treat me like I saw my father treat my mother. We have all of these ideas in our mind, right. and yet there's this disconnect because we've never really had, to a great degree, healthy marriage modeled right. in front of us. Yeah, that's a big part of it, Craig, really, is, is not having those role models. And oftentimes, even if the parents stayed together, there aren't good models of conflict oftentimes. I talked to a lot of couples whose marriages for their parents were intact, but the, they would either have a very angry a way of managing conflict which wasn't helpful to them in terms of learning skills, or they'd do it behind closed doors, and they wouldn't be you know, privy to the resolution that might happen if it did. So they come ill-equipped, but combine that with a lot of high expectations about not having conflict. Their picture is that a really good marriage should have that high degree of conflict. So when they do experience it themselves, they get disillusioned pretty quickly and pretty early. So then it can be equally dangerous to either be overly aggressive in terms of the engagement in conflict as it can be the attempt to be so disengaged mm-hmm. because there is a sense of being repulsed by conflict. You've seen the fights at home and mm-hmm. frying pans being thrown and dad right. screaming and yelling and doors being slammed. I don't want any of that in my marriage. So there's yeah. an attempt to avoid conflict at all costs. And yet I wonder, when you talk about opposites coming together, mm-hmm. Two different people, two different families of oranges, different right. expectations, different ideas about marriage, money, children, all of this. Right. And we're going to somehow expect that we're going to do this with no conflict yeah. or we're going to have such a degree of overconflict. It seems almost as if both sides are equally dangerous. Yeah, they are. And that's why I try to normalize conflict because conflict is actually, a, I think, a, a way in which we create intimacy in the relationship if we know how to manage it and handle it well. But yes, if we've had either an experience where our parents were really volatile, we may tend to avoid conflict, or we may tend to become very angry in our own marriages and kind of transport that in. 
But uh, to have a marriage where uh, parents where they did conflict, but they also resolved it in a loving and respectful way in front of you is a really rare thing. So um, I don't know if you did. I didn't. And so it's it's very challenging, I think, for couples to come into marriage with feeling like they're able to handle and manage that. So how much is the other C word contributory to this? And that is that as much as conflict can mm-hmm. be so detrimental to the health of the marriage relationship. Um, is communication another issue, too? It seems to me that that lack of communication is yeah. what typically leads to so much conflict because we've never taken the time to, to communicate to our spouse what our expectations are of them or ourselves. And so, therefore, it's almost as if you're you're adding fuel to the conflict fire because of a lack of communication at the start. Yeah. Well, lack of communication is, is an issue. I think how we communicate is a, is a big issue. And when we have needs and we have hurts and we have wounds, oftentimes the way in which we communicate can activate and trigger some defenses in our mate. And when that happens, they're not listening. And so that shuts down, which is a very vital part of communication is being able to have, you know, an open ability to be open-hearted and really listen and hear our mate. So a lot of times our wounds from childhood, the ways in which we were raised, the ways in which we learned to protect ourselves in childhood does come into play in terms of being able to communicate our needs. Sometimes we're not even aware of what our needs are. If we grew up in a home where our parents were not nurturing about uh, our feelings, they maybe didn't feel comfortable with their own feelings, so they didn't nurture us, we have difficulty not only articulating our feelings to our mate, but even knowing what our feelings are. Well, you just complicated things here. (laughs) We've gone from conflict to communication to complication because you're right. A lot of people perhaps fail in the ability to express what their expectations are or their needs are because they've never really figured that out for themselves. Right. They know they hurt. They know their mate isn't moving toward them in the way they want them to do, but they don't know how to clearly and respectfully ask for what they need. Either they often think, and this is one of the big problems in communication, is this expectation that the other is going to mind read my need and know what I need, and if they don't know what I need, then... Uh, this isn't a loving relationship, rather than take responsibility for communicating what I do need from you, uh, that's that's more challenging and difficult to do that without a lot of heat and without a lot of um, woundedness. Marriage and family therapist with us today in studio, Laura Taggart. Her new book is called Making Love Last, Divorce Proofing Your Young Marriage. I have to wonder, too, in a day and an age where so much of the focus in society is about asserting my position, asserting my authority, asserting my rights, are we working so hard in an effort to try and be heard that we are failing our spouse? Should we do more to learn or insist that we want to hear? Oh, yes. (laughs) More than be heard? Yeah, and that's kind of you know, antithetical to our basic nature. You know, we want to be understood. We want to be heard. We want to be known. And so we hurt. And oftentimes as children, we, we carry the hurt from childhood of not having that kind of attunement from a parent. And so we get into marriage and we think, aha, finally, I've met that person who is going to attune to our needs. And then we discover he's, he or she is not uh, listening. They're not attuning. And so we have these expectations and needs and we become demanding and sometimes manipulative to try and get what we want. Or as one woman said, my husband listens to me. He just doesn't hear me because he's tone deaf. 
Well, yes, that can be a selective, problem. Selective, selective attention, mm-hmm. yeah, hearing. But I believe listening is a, a skill that we are typically very poor at, and if we can learn to listen well, it is the most loving gift that we can truly give our mate. And, and doesn't it also lend a great degree of validation? Oh, yeah. To the person, if, oh. if instead of coming to the table insisting, but you've got to hear me, yeah. as opposed to saying, I really need to hear from you. Yeah. I really need to understand you. Yeah. Suddenly, that not only opens up a whole different channel of communication, but yeah. doesn't that immediately give a stamp that I'm validating you, yeah. that your thoughts... Your feelings, your needs as another person, as my spouse, matter to me? Yeah, absolutely. If you move toward your spouse and are really curious about their feelings and thoughts, that feels so good because they feel like, aha, here I have a partner who's really interested in my heart and is coming after me in that way, in a good way, to understand what I'm feeling. Uh, Oftentimes, the challenge, I think, with listening is that we have our own filters and our own lens through which we hear our mate, and we attach our own meanings to what they say. Back to my friend whose husband is tone deaf. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we really don't hear very purely. And when that happens, our mate feels very misunderstood. And so learning how to listen and check your own assumptions about what your mate is saying. And listening purely is a skill that I work on a lot in my office and uh, really encourage couples to learn and practice. It is an art form. It is not easy to do. It is the most selfless thing you're going to do in your lifetime, I think, as a partner. I had it explained to me once, Laura, as mirrored conversation. And by that, mm-hmm. I mean because we so typically are either trying to um, impose our interpretation upon what spouse is saying, Mm -hmm. or we're so focused on what we're going to say in response Mm -hmm. that we're maybe quiet, but we're not Mm -hmm. really listening. We're really thinking through how am I going to answer, how am I going to assert my desires in my response once he or she stops talking. And yet if we do the the mirrored conversation approach Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. we essentially parrot back in a sense. So if the wife says, You know, when you're working these late hours and I hardly ever see you, I really feel lonely Mm -hmm. and I feel like I'm abandoned. Yes. So for the husband to come back and say, so what I hear you saying is Mm -hmm. that when I get stuck at the office and I'm working till Mm 9 o'clock at night and you're here by yourself, Mm -hmm. you put the kids to bed, you feel like you're lonely, you feel like I'm... I'm abandoning you. Yes. Wow. Now all of a sudden we give a little bit of validation to what the other yeah. person is saying, and it, we allow it, hearing it twice yeah. not only helps us to, how should we say, confirm that what we think we've heard is what they've actually said, Yes. but you can kind of chew on it a little bit more and, yeah. and let the meaning of what they're saying sink in. No? Yeah, absolutely. And that really checks that tendency to put it through your own filter. If you can see it back to the person, to your spouse, and be able to use their language and understand their meaning by, as you say, parroting or at least mirroring or sharing with them what you hear. That is so validating, and it really, I think, helps the sender of the message, the person who's talking, to feel like he's, he or she is really getting it. Now, there's a right and wrong way of doing this, though, isn't there? Because if the individual can also say, honey, I'm feeling very alone, and if you come back with, 
Well, you think you're feeling very alone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we can yeah. suddenly right. head it into the wrong and direction. That's not like, well, that's <laughs> why oftentimes when I, when I talk with couples, I try and help them to be open-hearted as they begin. Help them to notice if they have any defenses that are up or any, um, you know, any, any uh, uh, protective parts of them that are not going to be able to allow them to listen well and to notice that before they even invite their spouse to share their thoughts and feelings with them. Because what you just described is an example of a, a defensive kind of response that is really not going to bode well. It's not going to allow the partner to feel really heard. There's really a, a skill that we le- need to learn here then, isn't there, in the sense that many marriage relationships, certainly these days, start with a level of physical intimacy. And we know even before we walk down the aisle what we look like naked but we've never taken the time to to understand what our emotions look like in a naked sense. And this, so there's, there's sort of that, that intimidation and vulnerability there that, gee, I, I, I don't dare sort of show all of who yeah. I am yeah. because I might be embarrassed, I might be hurt. I might be rejected. So it's almost as if we're more comfortable getting physically naked than we are emotionally naked. Is yeah. that is well, that accurate? That, that can be a sad truth, yes. And uh, that's, you know, my... the being emotionally, physically, and spiritually intimate, I think that was God's original intention, that it be a whole package. And we see that in Genesis with the, with the earliest couple, that there was all of the above. And when it talks about being naked and unashamed, it's referencing not only physical intimacy, but emotional mm-hmm. and spiritual intimacy as well. And that nakedness, that, that absence of fear in the presence of the other it can be so powerful when you are allowing yourself to be fully vulnerable and fully transparent. Uh, that's just an incredibly impactful thing. But a lot of times, I think, uh, depending on the couple, uh, emotional intimacy is really scary because if you bear your soul and you put it all out there, you know, will my spouse receive me? Will they reject me? And a lot of times if we've had damage or wounds from past experiences in our life, or even family of origin issues, and we carry those wounds into our marriage, our defense mechanisms uh, kick up with our mate whenever we get triggered by something that they do. And it may be a wound from long ago, but we are enacting it and uh, being setting up walls in our emotional intimacy that are based on experiences we had long ago. So helping a couple learn how to be emotionally intimate by doing business with these protective parts that have come in to defend them all their lives and helping them identify them first of all and then help them to um, offering compassion to these these uh, protective parts of themselves so that they can relax and they can actually bear their own heart to the spouse. Is it almost, Laura, like setting rules of engagement, establishing guidelines? I mean, the, the, the guys listening will get this. Hey, yeah. you couldn't have a successful baseball game or football game unless uh-huh. we had some rules yeah. that were in place that yeah. determine what the conduct is going to look like yeah. and what the limitations yeah. are yeah. for each side. Well, there are some uh, rules of engagement and, and certain ones that have been mentioned by John Gottman, marital researcher, which is, you know, you don't criticism. The four things that are going to take a marriage south are going to be criticism, contempt, stonewalling, and defensiveness. Those things are going to create a disconnection for a couple. But uh, it, it goes even deeper than rules of engagement, I think, to allowing yourself to take a peek at and look at, uh, do some soul searching around those ways in which you react in conflict, because they are really 
uh, I think, instructive to the wound uh, or the fear that you have as you relate to your mate. And so helping couples understand their own reactivity in conflict and where that reactivity is coming from, because oftentimes it is a a longer-standing wound, and when they can understand what that is, have some compassion for themselves about how they had to learn to protect themselves, and then invite them to uh, take a look at that and be able to to ask, you know, to, to calm that, uh, then they're able to come to their mate in a more open-hearted way. But until they really understand their reactivity, it's it's tough. Is there a degree then uh, where not only in the marriage relationship are we taking time to get to know one another, mm-hmm. but that each individual in the relationship needs to spend some time getting to know themselves? Yes, Craig. That is a huge thing, and that really is all about what I talk about in Chapter 4. It's spending some time seeking awareness of your own feelings and your own reactivity. Uh, as I say, a lot of times we don't have uh, much encouragement to know our feelings as kids. We either are so over-focused on mom and dad's feelings and wanting their approval, or mom and dad are kind of dismissive of our feelings and just want us to get on with it. And so we don't really know how we feel. So sometimes slowing down and paying attention to what you feel and giving words to what you feel, you can't be intimate with someone if you don't know your inner terrain. And especially, I think, intimidating if at the end of the day I don't like me. Yeah, but the, the and that is more about I think judging myself. Uh, if there's some part of me that I don't like, because there can be self-esteem issues that come in. I mean, totally. we hear about people all the time yeah. who marry somebody because they hope or yeah. are thinking that this person will distract me, change me, yes. uh, make me feel better heal about me, me mm-hmm. heal me. Yeah. As much as we hear stories about people yeah. who marry the other couple or the other person and say, well, I'm going to change him, yeah. I'm going to fix her, we're yeah. going to get all this, we're going yeah. to do all the work on their behalf. And the problem is our spouse has imperfections of their own, so yes. they cannot normally be our healer. I mean, the best relationship, you can have a, a healing influence on your mate. But really this work of doing some soul searching and and doing some business with those parts of yourself that are so reactive is an individual's responsibility. And it's a a hard journey, but it's a beautiful journey because if you don't do it, you're going to be continually reacting. Uh, You'll have a marriage that is is, um, marked by reacting through the years instead of being able to own your own stuff and not condemn yourself but have some compassion for yourself because whatever you don't like in you is coming out of a wound of some kind. Mm-hmm. And if you can identify that and learn to offer yourself some compassion instead of a judgment, you're able to be free and then be able to be more open-hearted and share that true self with your mate. Uh, that's a very, um, uh, it, it is very freeing to spend that time getting to know yourself in those deep ways, because until you do, you'll have that defensiveness that kicks in in every conflict. You'll need to protect yourself. You'll need to hide. You know, when it talks about being naked and unashamed in Genesis, there's no hiding. You don't have to hide. You feel so free and safe. And that's what I hope to do with couples is help to create enough safety so they can go there. They can go to their deep wounds and feel like it's going to be safe to do so and they're going to be able to be vulnerable with their mate about what they discover. And, Laura, this is particularly important not only because or or not only in the effort toward creating and building better, healthier marriages, Mm -hmm. but isn't this degree of self-inspection and sometimes self-forgiveness critical, too, in our relationship with God? Oh, of course. I mean, 
if we can't be transparent with God, who knows everything about us, yes, then that's going to stand as a huge barrier, not only on a relationship with the Lord, but certainly our yeah. relationships on the, the horizontal plane Absolutely. will be ill-impacted as well. Yeah, I think if we can really connect with how incredibly much God loves us and how much he's forgiven already— and how much he he uh, is smitten by us. When we really get that, it is so freeing, and it allows us to bear our. You know, we, it's okay to look at our stuff. It's okay to look at our woundedness. It's okay to look at our weaknesses. It's okay to look at our faults and flaws, because we know we're loved. If we really get that, then we don't have to hide anymore. And when you've truly experienced grace, yeah, and all that it means, mm-hmm. the ability to extend grace to another person person then yes. becomes a lot easier, doesn't it? Yeah, and, and when we can extend grace like that, it makes such a, for such a safe relationship, which is critical to intimacy. We can't have intimacy without knowing ourselves well and without creating safety for our mate to be whoever they are in the relationship. Now, you're thinking to yourself, wow, I wish I'd known this five years ago, ten years ago when we first got married. Or there's a couple down the street. There's a, somebody in our family. There is a couple at church that really needs to know this information. Some insights on divorce-proofing your young marriage. That is the subtitle of a new book called Making Love Last. Laura Taggart is with us today in studio. The book, by the way, is available, printed by our friends over at Ravel, and you can get it at the usual suspects, Amazon, Bay Area Christian Bookstores. You can also get more information about Laura Taggart online at lauratagart, dot com. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation, and we'll talk next about how to deal with disagreements as our conversation with family. Family Life Marriage Counselor Laura Taggart continues on this edition of Lifeline. 5.30. Wow. What happened to that break at 5.15? Just kind of right past that, huh, Mr. Roberts? My goodness. All right. Well, you're stuck in traffic wondering what's going on out there. Let's get the latest for you. Michael Bennett has it for us from the KFAX Traffic Center. Hey, Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. Welcome back to the program. Some solid advice from Frank Sinatra on love and marriage. And uh, they do indeed go together like a horse and carriage. Of course, the big question is, how do you maintain the love? How do you go into the marriage relationship eyes wide open with balanced expectations of yourself and of uh, your marriage partner without getting immediately hurt and Disappointed, And one of the big challenges, I guess, is that, you know, the, the old adage, um, Laura Taggart, that falling in love is easy, but staying in love. Now, that takes real work. There's where the dedication is. You have to kind of roll up your sleeves. You do. And, and almost make that a decision. Mm-hmm. And as you were suggesting to me off the air as we've been talking about your new book, Making Love Last, Divorce Proofing Your Young Marriage, um, there is sometimes the desire to want to change our partner. We're going mm-hmm. to fix him, fix her, bad habits, whatever. And rarely does that ever happen successfully mm-hmm. so. <laughs> and yet, as you suggest, that the broader idea, however, of transformation and change is very much acceptable because you see this as God's real design for mm-hmm. us to use the bond of the marriage relationship yeah. to be transformational 
in our lives, and where else can you find a, a similar relationship example anywhere on earth where the degree of the capacity of that iron sharpening iron yes. taking place yes. to occur but in the marriage relationship? Absolutely. What other relationship is going to trigger all your defenses, all your uh, excuses, all your justifications, but marriage? And, and who so- else but, but God himself sees all the foibles <laughs> errors, mistakes, and shortcomings, but your spouse. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, it was uh, um, one of the authors I talk about in the book that said, you know, if you want to see what you're like, look at the mirror of your mate, because the mate is going to reflect back to you what your wounds are, what your um, challenges are, what your selfishness is. It's in this intimate relationship of marriage, and I think solely in this intimate relationship of marriage where there's a commitment to constancy, but there is this challenge of the differentness of the other that is constantly, you know, nicking at your own defenses. So I think there's a way in which this crucible of marriage is intended to ultimately transform us, and I don't think there is another relationship, as you say, in life that is intimate enough and constant enough to create that kind of transformation. Do we fail at, at the need, the ability to really understand God's perspective on this? And I ask oh, that yeah. question because mm-hmm. we go into marriage with thoughts of, I'm going to have a life partner, I won't be lonely anymore, I'll have my mm-hmm. best friend, we'll go, we'll have fun, we'll have kids together, we'll, we'll build the dream house together. Mm-hmm. All of those things oh, of yeah. what we want for we, yeah. never stopping to say, okay, and what does God want? And what you're suggesting is that what God wants... On top of all of that for us, because yeah. he loves us and wishes yeah. to give us the desires of our heart. But mm-hmm. ultimately, God wants to use this relationship to transform yeah. us yeah. into a greater image and likeness of himself. That's right. And I remember when I finally figured out that God had put my husband in my life to be a change agent in my life, mm. that it's the very things I find most difficult to give him that in learning to give that, I am changed, and vice versa. The very things I need from him are the things that are hardest for him to give me, but as he learns to give it, his heart is changed. He's transformed to become more like the one who made him. So so I can see the, the husband going home tonight and saying, Honey, I've gotten it all wrong here. I thought you were in my life just to irritate me. <laughs> Instead, right. God put you in my life to change me. Right, right, right. To hold up a mirror and say, Hey, there's a few things that do need to be changed. And, uh, and there's no other relationship, I think, that shows us our immaturity mm. and our selfishness as much as our marriage. Very true, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And of course, along the way, let, let's let's talk about dealing with a few issues. We we mm-hmm. touched on this earlier. The the notion of some of the baggage that we bring into a marriage relationship from our family of origin. Mm-hmm. So if uh, when mom and dad fought, they went to separate corners and never communicated. Mm-hmm. We might bring that style mm-hmm. of conflict resolution into the marriage mm-hmm. relationship. I guess it can get problematic when you um, we have two opposites together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, in, in money, for example, well, if a, a saver marries a spender, that might be a little bit challenging. If two savers... Um, Marry together, probably have a lot of money in the bank, but but, but not much else. Uh-huh. If two spenders marry, well, mm-hmm. that's headed toward bankruptcy. Those different viewpoints mm-hmm. of dealing with things in conflict resolution and relationships and money and kids and all of that, if they're polar opposite, yeah. all of a sudden we've got some major disagreements about the big things. Yeah. Children, 
money, intimacy. Yeah, absolutely. And those differences, I think, are there actually by design. It's not by chance that we choose the mates that we do. And when our uh, needs conflict, for instance, if there is a, it's a very typical situation where one spouse is uh, neater than the other and one spouse is sloppier. And, you know, perhaps in families of origin, one the wife may have grown up in a family where things were just absolutely organized and she was expected to do things just so. And the the mate, the husband, grew up in a family where things were really relaxed. And so when they come together, they have a lot of conflict over that. And they expect that the other one will move more toward their line of thinking. And uh, so this compromise that has to happen and this understanding of needs, because oftentimes, especially in early marriage, you know, when you're beginning marriage, you want to, you have kind of this idealistic picture, this dream that you're going to see eye to eye on most things. And even if you have some conflict, it's not going to be a very notable conflict. And when you get into that second stage of marriage where things just start to hit the fan, where all of a sudden those um, differences that had been downplayed and that conflict that had been avoided and that um, personality that was kind of submerged to kind of create this we, all of a sudden in this second stage of marriage where your individual personalities and priorities start to emerge and differences start to reemerge and conflict starts to happen, couples just don't know what to do with that. So what started as, wasn't that a cute little habit of his? Yeah. Quickly moves into, isn't that irritating? Well, we're often attracted. For instance, a wife who's grown up in a really rigidly neat home is attracted to this relaxed guy. Really, there's something about that. And he's attracted to her sense of organization and orderliness. And, and yeah, when they get into marriage, the very thing that drew them into marriage becomes a source of irritation and annoyance. But the funny thing is we, we see in that scenario conflict. Yeah. And yet if we take a couple of steps back, God might see compliment. So where the really fastidious housekeeper uh-huh. maybe needs to take it down a few notches right. and not be so fussy. Right. And sloppy Joe over there right. needs to pick up the newspaper, <laughs> the dirty underwear, right. the socks, and all of that. So that at the end of the day, those opposites that attract, right. God, God's got a bigger plan here. A he doesn't plan. see conflict. He says these two will complement if they will only come to compromise and learn from each other. Exactly. Yeah, and oftentimes in early marriage, when we start to see these differences, they're very threatening to the picture, the dream that we have. And so we start to villainize the other person about their differences, and we start to get critical about the way in which they're different from us. Rather than just express a need of our own, we start to get critical or demonize. And so that becomes, uh, you know, a a way of, um, you know, and that's damaging to the relationship. How do we get this dialogue started soon enough? Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that most marriages, if you're married, for example, in, in the average evangelical church, Protestant church, Catholic mm-hmm. church, uh, you're going to be asked to go through a number of weeks or months of uh, pre-marriage counseling mm-hmm. and things of this sort. And after mm-hmm. you've uh, managed to fulfill the prescribed number of lessons or hours, they say, OK, mm-hmm. you're ready to go mm-hmm. and head down the aisle. The minister pronounces you husband and wife and now you're really in for trouble. Uh-huh. Um, and And then it's when... The inability to resolve conflict Mm -hmm. or the lack of communication or 
the shock and disappointment of mm-hmm. unmet expectations mm-hmm. suddenly gets into your your head and you realize this is not at all what I thought I signed up for. Mm-hmm. We're either rushing to go find a marriage counselor, hopefully they'll find somebody good like mm-hmm. you, or we're rushing to go find a divorce attorney because mm-hmm. we just want out. How do we start this dialogue early enough mm-hmm. in the relationship to be able to honestly and forthrightly look at the totality of the landscape and say, you know what, we both bring good things to this marriage. We yeah. also bring a lot of garbage and yeah. baggage to this marriage. Yeah. How do we get that dialogue started early enough to not become the statistic that says at yeah. 10 years, one-third of marriages right. are on the heap? Well, that's why I wrote the book, Craig. I wanted to really address these young couples that are struggling really early and need tools and they need a way of thinking about marriage that's different. You know, I think a lot of times with our very technological culture and our culture that is really about self-fulfillment and uh, pursuing novelty, uh, that it often is the case that uh, couples want to keep their options open and so they start thinking about you know, ending the marriage or uh, finding someone who meets their needs more, and they don't really have a vision for what marriage is. And so that is in part why I wrote the book, or a big reason I wrote the book, is to help give them a vision and also give them hope. You know, when they're in the midst of struggle, they think, I'm the only one, or, um, gee, if I had married my soulmate, these things wouldn't be happening. Happening, And I think that's such a disservice. The idea of soulmate, I think, is a, is such a myth because... Uh, everyone has their imperfections. And the idea of soulmate is that um, I'm going to find someone who's not going to challenge me, who's not going to require that I change, who's going to meet my every need, who's going to be able to anticipate uh, my thoughts. And that's what's going to make for a happy marriage. But that's not it. And complicating <laughs> that further in this society today, there's the mentality that says, and I'll continue to try this mm-hmm. until I do. Mm-hmm. So they're in and out of the front of the church and in and out of the divorce court time and time and time and time again until eventually you just kind of get worn out. And meanwhile, we've left this wake of collateral damage all around us of children and grandchildren and families that are torn apart and the pain and the confusion that are visited upon multiple generations just because we never took the time to say, okay, God, here's what I think marriage is. Mm -hmm. Now let me sit down and be quiet, and you show me what you think marriage is. Yeah, that's really true, Craig. It's so important because God has a whole different picture, and it's it's an exciting picture. And oftentimes we look at the statistics around us, we look at other marriages that are struggling, and we say, what is this? Is there anyone who's happy out there? And the truth is, yes, there are, but it takes a lot of hard work. But God's intention for marriage is that it be a blessing and that it be uh, a place of uh, comfort and a place of healing and a place of growth and a place of transformation. And if you hang in there, and that's one of the things that has really made me sad, is couples that bail right in that year five to ten before they get through the really difficult challenges, and they can do it with enough support and enough help. Most couples can do it. Now, there are exceptions, but most couples can with an awareness of their own protective defenses and some, you know, some bit of compassion toward themselves and toward their mate. They can move through the challenge that they're facing. And um, so understanding God's intention for marriage, I think, is huge because he's, he meant it to be permanent for a reason. 
because permanent marriage creates a constancy that allows for the kind of safety where passion is possible and healing is possible. You can have a sexually passionate marriage anytime you want to, but to have a marriage that is that is solid and you can be intimate in that naked and unashamed way, both emotionally and spiritually and physically, it takes work. But when you get to that place, and that's why I talk about the stages of marriage, because I want to give couples hope that are in the first idealized stage, but particularly that second stage, which is disillusionment, because most of us go through it. And those of us who do the work between stage two and three, stage three is that one of rediscovery where the differences are um, not painful, that you begin to embrace the differences. And couples still have conflict, but it's without all the negative reactivity and manipulation that's characteristic of stage two. If we can give couples hope that there is a stage beyond what you're experiencing, hang in there, do the hard work, and start to experience the blessing, which is what God intended. And doesn't all of that ultimately lead to the one thing that perhaps all of us seek, while we might not articulate this as the top of our list, at the end of the day, aren't we all really looking for a sense of stability? Yeah, I think we're all looking for a sense of, um, of uh, yeah, that constancy and that solid person that can be that one sure thing in our life. You the know, rock, we, the firm foundation. The firm foundation. And even though this is an imperfect human being, you know, ultimately God alone can be our rock and, mm-hmm. and is the only uh, source of, of um, that is not imperfect in that sense. But our spouse can be uh, that one sure thing in our life that the person who knows us the best, the person who uh, sees us more clearly, the person who uh, can give us loving feedback if we grow to that point where it's not caustic and negative feedback. Um, so it's it's a gift to have someone in your life who loves you that well. And it can be uh, a conduit. Our mate can, and I think was designed to be a conduit of God's love to us. And in the as we grow in our marriages, it can become more like that when we start to heal some of the brokenness and the uh, move through the difficult early stages of marriage and begin to enjoy the sweetness of that fruit. Well, and that brings us back full circle to your observation earlier of God's transformational plan mm-hmm. for marriage. That yeah. at the end of the day, as we come into any marriage relationship with family of origin issues and we are broken and we are hurting and we're all in this process of the pieces being glued back mm-hmm. together again mm-hmm. of all of the broken parts of our lives, yeah. that God so very much, I mean, the, the very plan of salvation is about mm-hmm. transformation yeah. from darkness into light and from brokenness into wholeness and from a broken relationship a disconnect in our relationship yeah. from him to being reconnected. And yeah. so that that transformation and that underlying aspect of God's ideal for marriage really ultimately takes us to his perfect plan, not only for marriage, but ultimately for our relationship with him. He yeah. wants us to live a transformed relationship with him. He does. And if we can understand that he's at work, he's at work in our marriages. We're not alone in our marriages. Um, I, I remember a time that my husband and I had a very difficult season, and 
I was really feeling kind of self-pity and feeling like I deserved better. And, and uh, I was kind of angry with God, and I was, I was having it out with him. And uh, in this moment of real self-pity, I kind of heard this, not audible, but just in my heart, I heard this, Laura, get out of my way. I've got Gary. And when I really realized that God was active in my spouse's life, and I didn't have to change them, I didn't have to change him, I could trust that God is up to something. <laughs> He's up to some busyness in his life. I could let go. And that was really a transformational moment for me, to be able to let go of him, stop changing him, stop grappling for my own needs, entrust him to the one who made him, and partner with God in the transformation of my husband's life, and then be open to the transformation of my own. Well, not only must that feel incredibly liberating yeah. and a huge relief, but it also, it, doesn't it take us back to a, a central issue, and that is, in any relationship, the only one that we really have any control over is ourselves, Absolutely, and we yeah. want to change our spouse's viewpoint and thinking process and behaviors and all of that, and yet at the end of the day, no amount of nagging, preaching, uh, leaving notes, fights, yell, <laughs> whatever, will ever really fully accomplish that. The only one that we have full say-so over in terms of behavior and viewpoint and attitude is ourselves. Absolutely. And that's a lot of power. We have a lot of impact. And if we can take that seriously and, as I say, do our own personal work to understand our feelings and our reactivity and, um, you know, uh, come to a place of compassion for ourselves and for our mate, that's what begins to change. We talked earlier about a sense of, of vulnerability, of being mm -hmm. naked, so to speak, mm -hmm. emotionally and, and relationally with our spouse. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, isn't that really what God seeks of us, too, that, that he wants us to be vulnerable, to let our guard down? Yeah. Yeah. And that's scary. It's terrifying for some people who have had protectors up and guards up for their whole life. And so many of us, ha all of us have prote protective ways of being. And it is scary to think about letting that down. I, I liken it sometimes to a castle that has this moat around it of protection. And if we see the enemy out there, we're going to keep our gate up and we're not going to lower it down over the moat. But when we look out on the horizon and we see someone who's safe and, and, and has good intentions for us, we're willing to lower the, down the, the bridge and invite that person into our castle. But once in our castle, they see all the vulnerabilities of the castle. They're privy to that. And as long as they are safe and they are non-critical and they are um, uh, affirming, we feel safe having them there. But the minute they become critical, we ask them to leave and we are, you know, and we pull up our gate. So our vulnerability is something that's tender, um, but it is, that is what intimacy is. It's inviting someone else in. But again, we have to let our gate down just like we need to let our guard down to let our mate in. And that can be scary. Now, what do you say to the woman listening right now mm -hmm. who says, Laura, I get it. I understand it. Mm -hmm. I wish my knuckleheaded husband mm -hmm. would get it. Mm -hmm. The minute we move into the touchy, feely, <laughs> he, yeah. he, he is in touch with all of his emotions as yeah. the 49ers are running the play down the field. Right. But when it comes to what he's thinking, feeling on any other topic but sports, yeah. let alone our marriage, yeah. forget about it. This guy is as cold as a cucumber comes. Yeah. What do you do when the marriage has this issue that one side's kind of starting to get it, 
smart ones listening to us right now, uh-huh. and the other side doesn't quite get it. They're not yeah. there yet. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes that can be not only very frustrating, but maybe the desire to try and want to push the yeah. spouse. Yeah into the right direction. Yeah, yeah. Well, honey, if you'll just sit down and read this book with yeah. me, if you just go to the seminar. Yeah. So what do you say to the spouse that feels as if there's 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 an unequal yoking in that arena? Yeah, that yeah. One gets it and the other doesn't. Well, that, what des- do you do? that describes most marriages, actually, Craig. Does, oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I think so. a lot of times men are scared of emotional intimacy. They don't even know what it is. You know, they, they hear it. They hear their wife yearning for something more. And really, it's it's fairly simple what she's asking for. She sometimes doesn't even know what she's asking for, but she's really asking for him to just pay attention to what he's feeling and share it with her. Just open the door a little bit. So I encourage women whose husbands aren't on the same page to not bombard him or not have high expectations because emotional intimacy for a guy may be a very brief encounter. Don't expect long, emotional, connecting conversations, but maybe ask him and say, honey, you know, can we go for a walk, you know, to get away from the TV, et cetera, or say, you know, can I have 10 minutes a day? where we just sit down and we just talk about how we felt about what happened today. And, you know, invite him to, you know, say, hey, what's one thing that happened today that either, you know, frustrated you or made you really excited? And and invite him to start talking about what he feels, not in a big formal way, but just in a simple way. And then uh, share with him something you felt. Begin small. Don't have these high expectations. But invite him into more feeling type of conversations. A lot of times um, women are more attuned to their feelings. And sometimes women can be overwhelming with their feelings. And the husband can be flooded oh, we see this by all the, the wife's time. feelings. You know, yeah. she, the word love gets used. And by that she means she just wants to express what kind of a day that she yeah, had, yeah. and he hears love, and he thinks, okay, let's go up to the bedroom. Yeah. So the, yeah. There, there's, again, different expectations. Right. It's almost, you know, um, Gary Smalley talked about the languages of love. It's as, yeah. as if we're speaking two entirely different languages here. Yeah. Not that necessarily one is bad and the other one's good or vice yeah. versa, just yeah. that we need to kind of get on the same page. Yeah. And there's work to that, isn't there? There is work. And, you know, we sometimes think, you know, and say guys are more interested in sexual and women are more interested in emotional intimacy and a lot of times we there's a lot of resentment uh, around that because a wife will feel like if he's not willing to engage me emotionally I don't feel like being connected with him sexually and so he can get really frustrated about that but he doesn't understand you know he may not be um, available and very giving when it comes to emotional the reality is God wants us to experience all of intimacy and if someone's really cut off from their feelings, I would encourage them to, hey, think twice. Because if you really want this to be intimate and a deep friendship for your lifetime, you're going to move towards your wife and have more conversations around how she's feeling. And it's really simple. All he has to do is ask, how are you feeling today, honey? That's really helpful to her. You don't have to have these lengthy, long conversations. Although sometimes sitting down and talking about um, you know, deeper levels of feeling is helpful to her. And just knowing that a savvy husband is going to move toward her and just ask her on a fairly regular basis, what are you feeling? How are you doing? Um, what do you feel about that? And just invite her to talk about her feelings. And she'll feel more connected to him. She'll be more interested physically as he moves toward her emotionally. And it, it's a sweeter experience. But both of them need to give. You know, she can't, you know, hold out uh, I mean, she can if she wants to, but um, 
you know, she it, it's it's hard. Oftentimes, I see women who are cut off sexually and don't want to give anything because he's been so unavailable emotionally. And so there's this stalemate, this impasse. And someone has to break through that impasse and invite the other into conversation and connection. Because she does need to feel emotionally connected to really feel fully available sexually. You, you in the book, refer to marriage as being a lot like the stock market. Uh-huh. <laughs> What does that mean? Yeah. Well, it takes investment over time. It's not something that's going to have a a huge effect immediately necessarily. And when there's a downturn in the market, a lot of people get kind of scared and want to pull out. Mm. And um, so that's an analogy that is about contributing on a regular basis, investing on a regular basis in your marriage, whether that's a date night weekly, whether that's a walk around the block every night or 20 minutes of conversation and dialogue every night. But thriving marriages usually have a routine and a regularity to their connectivity, to their ability to connect, rituals of connection. And uh, that can really help the marriage Uh, thrive over time. And as any financial advisor will tell you, uh, much like a marriage advisor, um, realistic expectations, um, a sense of your appetite for risk, uh, making sure that when you you get in, you understand that there's going to be up days and there's going to be down days. There are going to be ups and downs in the market. Yeah, absolutely. But the long-term benefits, benefits, historically, have always proven yeah. To be there. Right. Yeah. And so, and also you want to diversify your investments. And when I say that, I'm not talking about outside the marriage. I'm talking about diversify by investing in various ways, sharing interests with each other, um, going to a marriage conference or um, taking up a hobby together or, um, uh, you know, exploring uh, new, uh, you know, ways you laugh together. So there's just... Keeping the marriage thriving takes intentionality, and so being intentional about how you uh, diversify within the marriage. It's been a look at Making Love Last, Divorce Proofing Your Young Marriage, the new book, by the way, published by Ravel, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also order it online through Amazon. And, of course, if you want to get more information about Laura Taggart, you can reach her online at Laura Taggart, T-A-G-G-A-R-T, Laura Taggart. Dot com Private practice in the East Bay and involved with the Family Ministry over Community Presbyterian Church mm-hmm. for uh, many, many years there in Danville. Mm-hmm. It has been a delight to have you mm-hmm. with us. Will you do it again? Sure. Love to have you back. Love to. Laura, thanks so much for your time. There is Family Marriage Counselor Laura Taggart. All right, we're going to take a brief time out here, get you updated on some traffic. We're a bit late, so uh, get caught up on things right now. The latest with Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.